Welcome to Endless Summers, an Australian Test Cricket History podcast. Episode 6, 1902-03 in South Africa, sauntering around the Highveld. After the success of their tour of England, the Australians boarded their ship to begin their journey to the new frontier of South Africa. The 18-day journey gave the players a much-needed break after a stacked program over the previous five months in the United Kingdom. The players were pioneers, being the first Australian side to visit South Africa, 13 years after the Springboks had first played a test match. South Africa's cricket history stretched back to 1808 when British soldiers brought the game to the country. At this stage, the Dutch Cape Colony had been occupied by the English, a result of the Netherlands being part of the French Empire under Napoleon at that time. The first known game, played between two military sides, was for a prize of £1,000. Formally ceded to the British in the peace settlements of 1814, cricket grew in prominence as more British settlers arrived, with the establishment of a club in Port Elizabeth in 1843. The arrival of the British saw the original Dutch settlers, known as Afrikaners or Boers, migrate further inland, setting up colonies in Transvaal and Orange Free State. This caused further conflict with the indigenous population, notably the Zulus, who had been expansionists themselves since the early 1800s. Two discoveries, diamonds in 1867 and gold in 1884, in the Boer-controlled republics, led to a population boom as thousands of people attempted to find their fortunes. This also increased the British urge to gain control over all the republics of Southern Africa. This saw the successful crushing of the Zulu nation in 1879. Although attempts to control the Boer republics failed in the First Boer War of 1880-81, where guerrilla tactics successfully repelled the British invasion. The wealth generated by gold allowed for new construction and investment in the colonies, with the establishment of Johannesburg being a key development in this time. As many of the new arrivals to the gold fields were of British origin, they naturally brought their sports with them, including cricket. This led to the establishment of more cricket clubs and grounds, with Newlands in Cape Town and the Wanderers in Johannesburg being established in the 1880s. With the wealth being generated due to the minerals boom, this attracted investors to the colony looking for other ways to make money. With the popularity of cricket growing, they looked to bring a side of English cricketers for a tour of the colony as a money-making venture, much like sides have been travelling to Australia for over two decades by this point. Local cricket enthusiasts approached retired British Major Robert Wharton to organise the tour. Wharton had served in South Africa for years and been a member of the Western Province Cricket Club. After engaging with local agents in the UK to organise the side, they had the good fortune of getting Sir Donald Curry, head of the Castle Shipping Line, which had substantial interest in South Africa due to the location's key point on international shipping lines, to agree to sponsor the tour. Charles Aubrey Smith, from Sussex, was selected to captain the side. Five players with previous test experience, Bobby Abel, Johnny Briggs, Maurice Reid, George Ulyett, and keeper Harry Wood joined Smith on the tour. The remaining players, including tour organiser Wharton, were generally of less than county standard, with most never having played first-class cricket at all. The tour took place over the southern summer of 1888-89. At the time, pitches were of varying quality in South Africa, and as such, most games were played on matting rather than turf. Over 20 matches were scheduled, the majority against the odds, with sides of up to 22 playing against the English. However, at the end of the tour, one match was organised at St George's Park, Port Elizabeth, where the sides would be of equal strength. This would retrospectively be given test status in 1897, making it the first test South Africa would play. The South Africans were led by Owen Donnell, whilst the side also featured A.B. Tancred, an up-and-coming talent. The South Africans won the toss and chose to bat, but could only manage 84, with Tancred top scoring with 29. 
Smith claimed five for the visitors, whilst Briggs had four. In response, England posted 148, a lead of 64. A bell top scored with 46, whilst 32 from last man Fothergill saved some blushes as slow left armour Albert Rose Innes claimed 5 for 43 to challenge the English. The second inning saw the South Africans post 129 in 94 ball overs, sending the English the target of 66 for victory. They did this comfortably, winning by 8 wickets. The response to the first test was strong, with over 5,000 in attendance on each of the two days of play. As such, a second such match was arranged before the end of the tour, this one taking place in Cape Town. The English won the toss and chose to bat, posting 292, with a bell leading the way with 120, whilst Gobo Ashley took 7 for 95 for the home side. In response, South Africa collapsed twice, out for 47 in the first innings and 43 in the second. Johnny Briggs was a destroyer, taking 7 in the first and 8 in the second to finish with 15 for the match. Tankard had opened in the first innings and carried his bat for 26, becoming the first player to do so in test matches. The series had a profound impact on the development of South African cricket. Curry, satisfied with the returns from sponsoring the tour, chose to fund the development of a trophy for South African cricket, with the Curry Cup becoming the basis for first-class competition in the country. A member of the English side who had played in both tests, Frank Hearn, chose to settle in South Africa and would eventually represent them in cricket. It also proved the popularity of the sport in the country and meant that more tours would be organised. As an aside, the English captain, Aubrey Smith, would go on to become a famous film actor in Hollywood, while also establishing the Hollywood Cricket Club. The next tour came in 1891-92, led by amateur Walter Reed. This tour was not as successful as the first one, due to attention being drawn by a British rugby tour occurring in the region at the same time. As well, Lord Sheffield's side, featuring WG Grace, had taken many of the best English cricketers to Australia that summer, meaning the quality of Reed's side was not as strong as could be. The English side did include George and Alec Hearn, the brothers of Frank, whilst two Australian Test cricketers who had settled in England, Billy Murdoch and JJ Ferris, joined the tour. Once again, only the match against the whole of South Africa was considered first class, later to be designated the third ever Test match. A.B. Tancred chose not to play, with William Milton taking up the captaincy. Frank Hearn top-scored in both innings against his former side, with 24 and 21, but South Africa was bowled out for under 100 in each innings. Ferris did the damage, taking 13 for 91 in the match, whilst the English score of 369 was dominated by 140 not out from English wicketkeeper Harry Wood, who became the first designated keeper to score a test century. The match ended in an innings and 189-run victory for the English. However, cricket in South Africa was developing to the point that a tour of England was considered viable. One was organised for 1894. They would play 24 matches, winning 12, but none were considered to be of first-class status. The team included six test players, including Frank Hearn, with their most famous victory coming against the MCC by 11 runs, where all 40 wickets fell on the second day. The tour had caused controversy, however, and demonstrated the early and prominent segregationist tendencies of South African cricket. Crom Hendricks, by far the most dangerous bowler in South Africa, was recommended to tour by Walter Reed, having experienced his bowling on the previous tour. However, under pressure from the president of the Cape Colony, Cecil Rhodes, Hendricks was not considered for selection due to his coloured nature. This racism will cost the South Africans the services of arguably their best bowler of the period. Despite their victories, the tour was a financial disappointment. Yorkshire captain and English cricket supremo Lord Hawke would organise the next touring side to South Africa in 1895-96. The side featured the great bowler George Lohman, whilst newcomers Tom Hayward and Charles Fry would go on to long-term test careers. The side also featured Sammy Woods, the all-rounder who had played for Australia on the 1888 tour. On the matting pitches, the skilled Lohman was practically unplayable, 
taking a record 35 wickets in the three test matches, including 15 in the first and 12 in the second, whilst Hayward announced himself with 122 in the second test. The South Africans, despite losing all three tests by big margins, did manage to unearth two players of talent that were going to play big parts in early South African cricket. 20-year-olds Jimmy Sinclair and Charles Llewellyn, although neither would have a big impact in this series. The selection of Llewellyn was interesting compared to the treatment of Hendricks. Llewellyn was also of mixed race, but unlike Hendricks didn't promote that fact, with many saying he could pass for a tanned Englishman. Despite this, he was dropped for the third test, with many saying his race was the key reason. Lord Hawke brought the next side out in 1898-99. Again, it was not the strongest that the English could provide, but featured Johnny Tildesley and Pelham Plum Warner, who made their debuts and both scored centuries in the tests. As was now tradition, another former Australian test player, Albert Trott, was chosen to tour and performed well, taking 17 wickets in the test matches. Again, the tests were won by the English. However, there were some stronger signs from the South Africans. In particular, Sinclair was coming of age. He scored the first test half-century by a South African in the first match with 86 in the first innings, giving them a 106-run lead halfway through the test. Llewellyn also impressed with his left-arm wrist spin, taking five wickets for the match. However, Warner's 132 carrying his bat in the second innings allowed the English to set a total of 132 to win, with the South Africans falling 32 runs short. In the second test, which Llewellyn had surprisingly been dropped for, Sinclair put in an exceptional performance, first taking 6-26 with his medium pace leg breaks to bowl the English out for 92, before scoring the first test century by a South African with 106 to give them an 85-run lead. However, a century to Tildesley allowed the English to set a 246-run target, with the South Africans again collapsing, this time for 35. Tensions in the country were rising, and with the advent of the Boer War in October of 1899, cricket ceased in South Africa for the period of the war. This also prevented the 1899 Australians from fulfilling their commitment of touring on the way home from England. JJ Ferris, serving as part of an Australian military brigade, would die of typhoid during the war. Despite the war, there was still a tour of England organised by the South Africans in 1901. Playing 25 matches, including 15 first class, the South Africans acquitted themselves well, winning 12. Sinclair was a star bowler with 61 wickets, whilst Maitland Hathorn, who was yet to make his test debut, scored 827 runs at 35. None of the matches were against the representative England side, meaning none were classed as tests. Following the war, which resulted in the English takeover of the Africana Republics and would eventually lead to a united South African nation, cricket looked to resume. Fortuitously, with the Australians touring England in 1902, there was a possibility of making up for the cancelled tour three years previously. The Australians agreed to stop in on their way home for a program of six matches, including three tests, all of which would be limited to three days. The Australian squad was the same that had toured England, led by Darling and featuring Hill, Trumbull, Trumper, Duff, Gregory, Armstrong, Hopkins, Howell, Jones, Kelly, Noble, Saunders, and backup wicketkeeper Carter. The South Africans would be strengthened by the return of Llewellyn. Following his admission from the second test of the 1898-99 series, which was heavily rumoured due to being on part of his race, he had headed to England to ply his trade in county cricket. Playing for Hampshire, he racked up impressive figures, to the point where he was selected in the English squad for the first test of the 1902 Ashes, although he didn't make the final team. This selection by England proved fortunate for his cricketing prospects back home, however, as approval by the English establishment changed the impression of Llewellyn back home, making him more acceptable to the selectors. Llewellyn travelled on the same ship as the Australians before he was employed at the Wanderers, an excuse that he could exclusively prepare to play in the tests. 
The Australians landed in Cape Town before immediately boarding a train that would take them across the High Veld to Johannesburg, site of the first test. These would also be the first South African test matches where overs were six balls in length. Only a day after completing their journey, the Australians began the first test at the Wanderers, to be played on a matting pitch, a surface the Australians were almost completely unused to, given almost all their high-level cricket experience had taken place on turf wickets. The Australians left out backup wicketkeeper Carter, as well as the spinners Howell and Saunders from the eleven. Meanwhile, the South Africans had six debutants, including their captain Harry Taborah. Sinclair and Llewellyn would form the core of the side, supported by wicketkeeper Ernest Hallowell, who had been playing tests since 1892. Slow left armour George Rowe and opening bat William Shoulders were the other players with test experience. Of the debutants, George Thornton and Charlie Smith would only play in this series, whilst Maitland Hathorn would play 12 tests in his career. The final two players came from important cricketing families. Opener Lewis Tancred was the brother of the famous A.B., who was considered the best South African cricketer in his day, whilst 23-year-old Dave Norse was commencing a test career that would last over 20 years before passing the baton over to his son Dudley. Frank Hearn, who played a big part in early South African test cricket as a player and as an opponent, was to act as one of the umpires in all three tests. The South Africans were successful at the toss and chose to bat. The arrival of the Australians had been heavily publicised, with players like Victor Trumper already being household names, and as such large crowds flocked to the games, although only white people were allowed to access the ground, with the large, black, coloured and Indian populations prevented entry. Shoulders and Tancred opened the batting for the home side, whilst Jones was back after having fallen out of favour during the England tour, and Armstrong opened the bowling for the Australians. The score progressed to 31 before the first breakthrough was made, with Shoulders hitting a ball back to Jones to be caught and bowled for 19. This brought in Llewellyn to join Tancred. Here, the lack of practice the Australians had had since their departure from England began to show, as their bowling lacked both tightness and penetration. Furthermore, the unfamiliar conditions 1800 metres above sea level also played its part on the side. The South Africans raced along at over four and over, with Armstrong and Trumbull coming in for significant punishment. Llewellyn and Tanker took the partnership past 100, with both scoring half-centuries. Darling turned to his part-timers of Trumper and Hopkins before he also tried Noble with little to show for it. The batsman took the score past 200, with Llewellyn moving on to 90. Here he made his first mistake and was bowled by Trumper. He put on 173 with Tancred, who was then joined by Sinclair. Tancred moved on to 97 before he too fell to Trumper, caught by Duff. His score was the closest South African would come to making a century on debut until Andrew Hudson did so against the West Indies in 1992. Sinclair was joined by Hathorne, and the two prevented the Australians from making quick inroads, with both scoring 40s and sharing a 73-run partnership. Both were out either side of the team 300, with Sinclair caught and bowled by Hopkins, whilst Hatham was caught by Gregory off Jones. Two more quick wickets followed, with Hopkins claiming Taborah and Smith cheaply, leaving the South Africans at 7 for 325 just after tea. Once again, a partnership came together to frustrate the Australians, this time between the debutante Norse and wicketkeeper Halliwell. Norse in particular took advantage of the flagging Australians, finding the boundaries of these. He would move past 50 prior to the close of play, ending the day on 64 not out, whilst Halliwell had compiled 44. Their partnership of 103 had taken the South Africans to 7 for 428 at the close of play, already the highest score by a South African side in test matches. The Australians started the second day better. Norse and Halliwell both fell on 449 for 72 and 57 respectively. The innings ended shortly after when Rowe was dismissed, with the South Africans finishing on 454. The wickets were shared, with 3H to Jones and Hopkins, whilst Trumper and Noble both claimed two. The Australians commenced their innings with Trumper and Armstrong. Trumper was particularly harsh on the opening bowlers Rowe and Tabera, seeing them replaced by Llewellyn and Sinclair. 
This change was successful, as Armstrong was bowled by Sinclair for 11, having shared a 60-run partnership with Trumper. This brought Hill to the crease. The two best Australian batsmen made light work of the bowling, taking the score onto 100 before Trumper was dismissed by Llewellyn for 63. Duff replaced him, and again the two batted with great comfort. Hill made his way to 76 before he became Sinclair's second victim, caught by Norse. The score by this stage had moved to 3 for 195. From here, the bowlers surged. Within four runs, a further three wickets fell, with Noble for one, followed by Darling and Gregory for Ducks. Hopkins hung around for a while with Duff, taking the score past 200. When he fell for one, the Australians had lost five wickets for 22 runs and were in danger of not avoiding the follow-on target. Trumbull stopped the rot for a while with 13, whilst Kelly and Duff shared a 54-run partnership to take them within sight of 300. When Kelly was out at 296 for 25, the Australians needed a further nine runs to make South Africa bat again. However, last man Jones was dismissed without addition to the score. The damage had been done by Llewellyn and Sinclair. Sinclair had claimed four of the first five wickets to four with his leg breaks, whilst Llewellyn had cleaned up the Australian tail, taking six for 92 in an impressive performance. Duff had been one of the few Australian batsmen to handle the challenge of the spinners on the matting pitch, ending undefeated on 82. With well over a day to play, the Australians were asked to follow on. Trumper and Duff opened for the Australians. They again started well, although neither could match their first innings performance. Duff was caught behind off row for 15, whilst Trumper fell just before the close of play, bowled by Tabera for 37. Hill was 22 not out at stumps and was joined by Armstrong, who had yet to score. The game was still in the balance, with the Australians 2 for 76, meaning they were still trailing by 82 runs. Given the collapse in the previous innings, the South Africans were feeling positive about their prospects at gaining their first test victory. However, day three put pay to those ideas swiftly. Clem Hill put on a masterclass of batting. Across the first session of play, he made 116 runs, taking a score at lunch to an unbeaten 138, including a massive six into the grandstand. Hill was well supported by Armstrong, who made 59 in a 164-run partnership. Darling made 14 before falling just before lunch, whilst Hill only added a further four after the break before he was dismissed for 142. At 5 at 281, the Australians' lead was only 123, with the South Africans still right in the match. They were buoyed when Gregory was dismissed for four, bowled by Llewellyn. However, at this point, Noble combined with Hopkins to help take the Australians to safety. The two put on 56 to take the Australians past 300. Hopkins was out for 30, giving Llewellyn his third for the innings and nine for the match. No other wicket was taken, with Darling declaring soon after Noble had passed 50. The Australians' total of 7 for 374 set the South Africans a target of 215 in only just over 30 overs. There was a little chance now of the South Africans forcing a victory. However, with their history of collapses, a loss was certainly a possibility. They had the worst possible start when Shoulders was out for a duck, caught by Kelly off Jones. However, steady partnerships between Tancred and Hathorne, then, when Tancred was dismissed for 24, between Hathorne and Sinclair, took the South Africans out of danger. Hathorne top scored with 31 as the match ended with the South Africans on 4 for 101. The Australians had done well to get out of trouble after the first innings, whilst for the South Africans, whilst it was not a win, it was the first time they had not lost a match in their first nine tests. Immediately following the completion of the first test, the Australians played Transvaal at the Wanderers. The match was not first class, as Transvaal had 15 players. Transvaal's test top three of Tancred, Shoulders and Sinclair all started well, with the first two scoring 70s, whilst Sinclair scored a tonne in a total of 462. All 11 Australians bowled, with Howe taking five wickets. In Australia's innings, the total of 392 was dominated by Trumper's 218 not out, carrying his bat with none of his teammates making more than 36. The three-day match petered out to a draw. There was no rest for the players, however, 
As a day after the match against Transvaal finished the second test, a game at the Wanderers commenced. For the Australians, Trumbull made an early departure from the tour following the Transvaal match, needing to return home for business reasons. Jones was dropped, with Saunders and Howe coming in to replace them. This marked the end of Jones's 19-test career, where he had taken 64 wickets and at times had been the fastest bowler in the world. He would play the following Shield summer, but other than some games for Western Australia in 1907, that was the end for the South Australian speedster. Meanwhile, for the South Africans, they had a new skipper, with Biddy Addison debuting in place of Tabera. Two more changes were made, with Rowan Thornton replaced by Bonner Middleton, who had first played Test back in 1895, and debutant right-arm bowler Johannes Kotz. Darling was successful at the toss and chose to bat, opening with Trumper and Duff. The two made their way to 29 before Cotts found a way through Trumper's defences, bowling him for 18. Cotts made it two wickets when he had Hill stump for six. Armstrong joined Duff and the two settled in for a significant partnership. They put on 90 runs the other side of lunch before both fell with a score 125. Duff for 43 and Armstrong run out for 49. From here, the Australians suffered another collapse. Noble and Darling both fell cheaply to Llewellyn, whilst Gregor was out for one to Cotts. Now at 7 for 140, the Australians had lost 5 for 15. Hopkins and Kelly added some respectability, putting on 32 runs for the 8th wicket, but Llewellyn returned to claim the final 3 wickets for only 3 runs, ending the Australian innings on 175. Llewellyn claimed his second 5-wicket haul in as many tests, finishing with 5 for 43. There were still over 20 overs left in the day's play as the South Africans began their innings. Tankered and Shoulders opened, putting on a 58-run stand. Tanker was out first, LBW to Noble for 19, while Shelders followed shortly after when he was bowled by Howe for 42. Sinclair and Hathorn then combined to take the score towards 100. Hathorn fell at 91 when he was caught by Armstrong off Noble, but Smith combined with Sinclair to take the South Africans through to Stumps at 3 for 136, trailing by only 39 runs. Sinclair made his way to one short of a half century, and his batting on day two would go a long way towards giving the South Africans a substantial lead. The morning of day two belonged to Sinclair. While Smith was out with having added to his overnight score of 12, Sinclair attacked, bringing up his half-century. He consistently found the boundary and even twice hit the ball into the terraces. His partners were finding it difficult to stick around, though, with both Llewellyn and Norse out caught and bowled Trumper, whilst Halliwell was out for four soon after the South Africans passed the Australian score. At 7 for 179, Sinclair was joined by the debutant captain Anderson, and the two were able to build a substantial partnership. Anderson matched Sinclair's aggression, hitting a six of his own. The score raced past 200, while Sinclair approached his century, bringing it up after just over two hours of batting. This was to be his final act though, as he was soon after bowled by Howe for 101. The innings ended shortly after with Saunders claiming the final two wickets, with the South Africans finishing on 240, giving them a lead of 65. The wickets were shared, with Trumper and Noble both claiming three. Once again, the Australians were batting in their second innings at a deficit. Changing the order, Armstrong and Gregory were sent up to open. The 6'3 Armstrong made great use of his height, getting to the pitch of the ball and covering for any movement. He dominated the opening partnership of 40, which ended with Gregory caught for 13 off cots, and continued to do so even when sharing the crease with Trumper. Armstrong brought up his half-century soon after the Australians took the lead. He lost Trumper for 13 at 87, and was then joined by Duff. Duff took charge, taking the score past 100 and getting stuck into the bowling of Sinclair. He made his way to 44 out of a 56-run partnership with Armstrong before he was dismissed bowled by Sinclair. Noble joined Armstrong at 3 for 143, and the pair took the score onto 180, before Llewellyn successfully appealed for LBW, dismissing Noble for 24. Darling could only manage 4 before being bowled by the same bowler as the end of the day approached. 
Armstrong stood tall, however, ending the day on 94 not out, as the Australians posted 5 for 201, giving them a lead of 136 heading into the final day. The South Africans made a positive start to the day, dismissing Saunders for one without addition to the score. However, they were thwarted in their pursuit of quick wickets by the rival of Hill, who resisted whilst Armstrong continued to build the score. Armstrong's century came up soon after the start of play, his first in his 11th test. After putting together a 37-run stand, Hill was out for 12, giving Llewellyn his third wicket. Armstrong then had useful partnerships of 25 with Hopkins, who scored 8, and 27 with Kelly, who scored 9, taking the total to 9 for 290. Armstrong's 150 came up soon after, the Australians taking the score on to 309 before Howe was last man out. Armstrong had carried his bat for 159, the second Australian to do so after Jack Barrett in 1890. For South Africa, Llewellyn had claimed a further three wickets this morning, finishing with five for the innings. With the five he took in the first innings, he became the first South African to take ten wickets in a test match. The South Africans were set the task of 245 to win the match. It would require a supreme batting effort to do so. The Australians, having now got used to the matting surface after nine consecutive days of play, were far better prepared for bowling in these conditions, which Jack Saunders would exploit to great effect in the final innings. John Victor Saunders was born on the 21st of March 1876 in Melbourne, Victoria. Known as Jack, he made his debut for Victoria as a 23-year-old and quickly established himself as one of the premier spinners in the Sheffield Shield. He took 21 wickets in his first season before topping the bowling charts in his second with 29. These performances saw him make his test debut against England in the fourth test of the 1901-02 tour, taking nine wickets and helping bowl Australia to victory despite trailing on the first innings. His distinctive style of bowling where he flicked his left wrist upon delivery meant there were some concerns over the legality of his action, but also meant he could impart large amounts of spin on the ball, making him particularly dangerous on wet pitches. He was effective in England in 1902, taking 123 wickets in the first-class games, with 18 in the tests, including the final wicket in the dramatic fourth test victory by three runs at Old Trafford. Having not been selected for the first test of the South African tour, he was about to put on his finest bowling display. Saunders got into his work quickly, bowling Hathorne for one. Tancred was then joined by Shoulders, and the two held out for a while, with Tancred attacking the bowling of Trumper at the other end. Saunders got his second when he bowled Shoulders for three, but Tancred's assault was successful, with Trumper going for 27 in three overs before he was replaced by Howe. New batsman Sinclair also settled in, and for a while it looked as if the two could build a substantial partnership. However, when the score reached 46, Sinclair was bowled by Howell for 18. From here, the wickets began to tumble with regularity. Howell had Tancred caught behind by Kelly for 29 at 51, whilst Llewellyn became Saunders' third victim at the same score. Captain Anderson put on 11, while Smith held out at the other end, but again both were out at the same score, leading the South Africans at 7 for 66. Norse was resolute with 18 not out, but the final three wickets were all ducks, with the South Africans ending on 85 after only 22 overs. Saunders had claimed the final three wickets to fall, finishing with 7 for 34. He bowled very accurately and rarely delivered a ball that wouldn't have hit the stumps. The Australians' victory by 159 runs gave them a 1-0 lead with one test to play in Cape Town. Upon completion of the match, the Australians walked across the street from the ground to the train station, boarding an overnight train to Durban on the southeast coast. There, they faced the 15th of Natal at Old Lords. The match ended in a draw, but the highlight was Howe's effort in the first innings, claiming 11 of the 14 wickets. The players then boarded the ship, sailing around the coast with stops at East London and Port Elizabeth before arriving in Cape Town for the final matches of the tour. Here, they played Western Province in the only non-test first-class match of the tour. 
Once again, Howe played an outstanding match, taking 8 for 31 in the first innings, followed by 9 for 23 in the second, to go with 57 not out, in the Australians' 282-run victory. The three-day match ended a day early, giving the Australians a rest day prior to the beginning of the final match of the tour, the third test at Newlands. The Australians went into the match unchanged from the previous test. As was now tradition, the South Africans had a new captain, with the keeper Halliwell taking the lead in this test, with the previous captain Anderson being replaced by Percy Twentyman-Jones. Darling won the toss and decided to bat. Trumper and Duff opened for the Australians and put on a fine display, handling the bowling with ease. Llewellyn, Kotzer and Sinclair all came in for punishment, as Trumper in particular was harsh, finding the boundary on multiple occasions. He brought up a half-century and was a dominant partner as the openers put on a century opening stand. As soon as the milestone was reached, the first wicket fell, with Duff caught by Tancred off Kotzer for 34. Hill joined Trumper and two best Australian batsmen looked to take the game away. However, Trumper, who had made his way to 70, was surprisingly bowled by Llewellyn. The score was now 2 for 121, and from here the tempo of the inning shifted. Whilst at one end Hill was calm and decisive, the other batsmen now started to play with more doubt. The clever Llewellyn took advantage, bowling Armstrong for three. Soon after, Sinclair claimed the wicket of Noble for nine, with the Australians now four for 142. Hill was then joined by Hopkins, who made 16 in a 37-run stand before being bowled by Llewellyn. Hill shared another solid partnership with Gregory, this time putting on 44 and taking the score past 200, with Hill bringing up his half-century. When Gregory was out for 11, though, becoming Llewellyn's fourth victim, the bottom fell out of the innings. From 6 to 2.23 at Gregory's departure, the final four wickets could only manage 29 between them, with all batsmen falling for single figures. When Saunders was out out for four, Hill was left stranded on 91 as the Australians posted 252. Llewellyn had claimed two of the last four wickets, finishing with the impressive figures of 6 to 97, his fourth five-wicket haul for the series. The South Africans only had a few overs to bat on day one and managed to navigate that without loss, ending on none for 11, with Shoulders scoring all the runs. Despite this positive start, Day two began horrendously for the home side. After a bye was taken, Tancred was bowled by Howe for a duck. Shoulders fell in an extra over without adding to his overnight score, caught by Darling off Saunders. Worse was to follow in Howe's next over, where he claimed Sinclair for a golden duck, followed by Twentyman Jones for a second baller. The South Africans had lost four for none and were now four for 12. This was compounded soon after as Llewellyn, who had added the first run off the bat for the day, was Howe's fourth victim, bowled for one. Smith, who had come in at the fall of the first wicket, was joined by Hathorn, and the two started to build some respectability. But when Smith was dismissed by Saunders to 16, the South Africans were 6 to 36. Hathorn, Norse, and Hallowell all managed to post scores in the teens to take the South Africans towards 100, but two runouts compounded their issues. When Cotts was the last man out, the South Africans had posted 85, 167 runs behind the Australians. Howell and Saunders had shared the wickets, claiming four apiece. There was little hesitation in making the South Africans bat a game. The inning started poorly, with Tancred caught and bowled by Howe for two. However, Shoulders and Smith then combined to put on 79, nearly the entire total of the South Africans' first innings. Their partnership even made Darling try different bowlers, with Howell and Saunders being replaced by Trumper and Hopkins. This would create the breakthrough, with Smith being caught and bowled by Trumper for 45. This brought Sinclair to the crease, coming off his duck in the first innings, joining Shoulders, who was in his 30s. The next hour was the Sinclair show. He dominated the scoring, finding the boundaries of these, and even clearing the rope multiple times. He took the score past 100 before losing shoulders to 40. Twentyman Jones then fell immediately for a duck, whilst Llewellyn could only manage eight, leaving the South Africans at five for 134. Sinclair found a willing partner in Hathorne, who managed to hold up an end as Sinclair unleashed all around the ground. 
No bowler could contain him as he hit 10 fours as well as six massive sixes, the most ever in a single innings to that stage, a mark which would stand until Wally Hammond's 10 in 1933. His 100 came up just prior to stumps, taking only 80 minutes. He became even more reckless at this stage and was outstumped in the final over off Saunders for 104. The 79 balls he had faced was just three short of the 76 faced by Jessup in his famous century at the Oval in the previous Ashes. Coming in with his team on 81, he had scored 78% of the 135 runs whilst he was at the crease. However, his dismissal had come with the South Africans 53 runs ahead with only four wickets in hand as day two came to a close. The faint hope that South Africa would put up a competitive total on the third day was dashed early, as Howe claimed three quick wickets, all bowled, with only nine runs added. Hathorne was last man out for 18 to Saunders, ending the South African innings on 225. Howe was the star for the Australians, finishing with 5 for 81, giving him 9 for the match, while Saunders and Hopkins had 2 apiece. This left the Australians with only 59 needed to win the match. With the final innings before completing the 8th month tour of England South Africa, Trumper and Duff were in a hurry. They scored at over 6 and over, completing the chase without loss in only 9.5 overs, giving them the win and a 2-0 series victory. With the successful completion of the tour, the Australians departed for home three days later. In their short time in the country, they had made many friends and their influence was felt around South Africa, especially as they were the first truly national side of any sport to visit South Africa, with previous tours being seen as private ventures. They would arrive home a fortnight before Christmas, just in time to take part in that season's Sheffield Shield. South Africa was still a country that bore the scars of the recent war, but the tour of the Australians had done some good in helping to forge a united identity. However, as the treatment of Llewellyn and other players of mixed origin had showed, the policy would become apartheid was already becoming embedded in South African society. Blacks were excluded as British settlers and Afrikaners looked to forge a united front to protect their newly formed society. Even Mahatma Gandhi, who was working in South Africa as a lawyer at the time and was developing his sense of social justice that would one day lead to the independence of India, railed against a system where blacks and Indians were kept out of cricket and even if allowed into games to watch, could only do so from caged areas away from other spectators. It would be almost 90 years before the end of the apartheid system would begin to allow players of colour to become a key part of South African cricket. Overall for South Africa, whilst they had lost the series, there were a lot of positives to take out of the matches. They had led on the first innings of the first two tests. While Sinclair with his two centuries and Llewellyn with his four five-wicket holes had demonstrated that they were players of high class, as good as anyone in the world. The debut of Norse, who would in time become one of the key players in early South African cricket, was also a major moment. However, it would be an Englishman in the next Ashes series that would give the South Africans the edge that they would need to claim their first test victory, as where Bernard Bosanquay unveiled the googly, it would be adopted by a quartet of South African bowlers who would go on to use it to devastating effect. Thank you for listening. New episodes of Endless Summons will be released fortnightly. Please subscribe to be notified of new releases. You can also follow us on Twitter at pod underscore endless, and you can email us at endlesssummerpod at gmail.com.